This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program today. Recently, a dear friend of mine introduced me to the book Opening the Door of Your Heart by the famous Ajahn Brahm of Bodhinyana Monastery in Serpentine, Western Australia. It's a book of the stories that he often tells in his teachings and a wonderful read, full of Ajahn Brahm's great wisdom, love and compassion. However, if you decide to read it, be sure to have a box of tissues close by. Some of the stories will certainly pull hard at your heartstrings. Before we get into the story I want to open the program with today, Please note that Ajahn Brahm is a disciple of the great Thai Theravadan monk and teacher Ajahn Chah, who died in 1992. Please keep this in mind, remembering what I said two programs ago about the great wisdom and compassion of the Arhats and how the Mahayana, by comparing Arhats with Bodhisattvas, almost defensively seems to put them down whenever it has the chance. The story we are about to look at lends its title to the book itself, opening the door of your heart. It concerns seven monks living together in a cave somewhere in Asia a long time ago and a gang of bandits. And I will let Ajahn Brahm tell it from there. He writes, There was the head monk, his brother and his best friend. The fourth was the head monk's enemy. They just couldn't get along. The fifth monk in the group was a very old monk, so advanced in years that he was expected to die at any time. The sixth monk was sick, so ill, in fact, that he too could die at any time. And the last monk, the seventh, was the useless monk. He always snored when he was supposed to be meditating. He couldn't remember his chanting, and if he did, he would chant off-key. He couldn't even keep his robes on properly. But the others tolerated him and thanked him for teaching them patience. I think I must have been that monk in a previous life. One day, a gang of bandits discovered the cave. It was so remote, so well hidden, that they wanted to take it over as their own base, so they decided to kill all the monks. The head monk, fortunately, was a very persuasive speaker. He managed, and don't ask me how, to persuade the gang of bandits to let all the monks go, except one, as a warning to the other monks not to let anyone know the location of the cave. And that was the best the head monk could do. The head monk was left alone for a few minutes to make the awful decision of who should be sacrificed so that the others could go free. Now at this point, Ajahn Brahm usually stops and asks his audience who they thought the head monk chose. Well, who do you think he chose? Remember, there's the head monk, his brother, his best friend, the enemy, the old monk, the sick monk and the useless monk. Ajahn Brahm lets his audience have their say, but almost always they get it wrong. Actually, the head monk was unable to choose. 
His love for his brother, his enemy, the old monk, the sick monk, and even the useless monk was all the same. He had perfected the meaning of the words, The door of my heart will always be open to you, whatever you do, whoever you are. Ajahn Brahm writes, The door of the head monk's heart was wide open to all, with unconditional, non-discriminating, free-flowing love. And most poignantly, his love for others was equal to his love for himself. The door of his heart was open to himself as well. That's why he couldn't choose between himself and the others. Ajahn Brahm goes on to remind the Judeo-Christians and his audience that they are taught to love thy neighbor as thyself. Not more than yourself, not less than yourself, but equal to yourself, he says. It means to regard others as one regards oneself, and oneself as one regards others. Why is it that most of my audience thought that the head monk would choose to die himself? asked Ajahn Brahm. Why is it in our culture that we are always sacrificing ourselves for others and this is held to be good? Why is it that we are more demanding, critical and punishing of ourselves than of anyone else? It is for the one and the same reason. We have not yet learned how to love ourselves. If you find it difficult to say to another, the door of my heart is open to you whatever you do, then that difficulty is trifling compared to the difficulty you will face in saying to yourself, me, the one I've been close to for as long as I can remember, myself, the door of my heart is open to me as well, all of me, no matter what I've done. Come in. That's what I mean by loving ourselves. It's called forgiveness. It's stepping free from the prison of guilt. It is being at peace with oneself. And if you do find the courage to say those words to yourself, honestly, in the privacy of your own inner world, then you will rise up not down to meet sublime love. One day we all have to say to ourselves those words, or ones similar, with honesty, not playing games. When we do, it is as if part of ourselves that had been rejected, living outside in the cold for so long, has now come home. We feel unified, whole, and free to be happy. Only when we love ourselves in such a way can we know what it means to really love another, no more and no less. And please remember, you do not have to be perfect without fault to give yourself such love. If you wait perfection, it never arrives. We must open the door of our hearts to ourselves, whatever we've done. Once inside, we are perfect. Ajahn Brahm then goes on to perfect his telling of the story with a sublime ending. He says, People often ask me what happened to those seven monks when the head monk told the bandits he was unable to choose. The story, as I heard it many years ago, didn't say. It stopped where I finished. But I know what happened next. I figured out what must have ensued. When the head monk explained to the bandits why he couldn't choose between himself and another and described the meaning of love and forgiveness as I have just done for you, then all the bandits were so impressed and inspired that not only did they let the monks live, but they became monks themselves. <laughs> I think he's dead right, don't you? Now you may be wondering why I chose this story to open the program today. Well, we've been going through the benefits of bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. But it is easy when developing this mind to reinforce the Western conditioning that impels us to think that we are not as worthy as others. Even in her teaching last week, Tupton Children told a story of a mother who was deeply into drugs but gave them all up when she, was, when she realized she was pregnant. 
She didn't want to jeopardize her child's life, said Tipton Chaudron. I thought that woman's love for herself was much less than her love for her child. She wouldn't stop for herself, but she would stop for her child. Think how much the love and compassion that we have for others can make our own mind not only happy, but very strong, very courageous. Much more courageous than if we're self-centered and just care about our own benefit. I think there's something powerful there when we are really able to open our heart and have that kind of love and compassion for others. This is true. But what if that woman had started out with so much love for herself that she wouldn't have taken the drugs in the first place? If she'd had the amount of love, compassion and forgiveness for herself that she had for her child, neither her child nor herself would ever have been in danger from drugs. And later, if her attitude to herself remained the same, wouldn't she just pass it on to her child in ways that she wouldn't even realize? So the child would grow up with the same lack of concern for him or herself that the mother had for herself. When we talk about bodhicitta, it seems to me that we should not think only in terms of the welfare of others and particularly at our own expense. As I said in the last program, you and I are also sentient beings and we are both trying to find happiness and freedom from sorrow just like everyone else. How can we think we are less important, less vital than anybody else? The Buddha himself said that nobody is more worthy of our love and compassion than we are ourselves. And so to recall Ajahn Brahm again, me, the one I've been close to for as long as I can remember, myself, the door of my heart is open to me as well. All of me, no matter what I've done, come in. Only when we love ourselves in such a way can we know what it really means to love another, no more and no less. And now I've gone on long enough without setting motivation, so let's think about why we're participating in the program today. Let's remember Ajahn Brahm's words, and through our love for ourselves, or developing it, and equally for others, motivate that this program becomes the cause for every being's liberation and enlightenment, and that means me and you as well. Thank you. We've been considering the benefits taken from the teachings on the graduated path in Tibetan known as the Lam Rim, as taught by the highly experienced nun Tupton Chodron. Her list starts with the assertion that bodhicitta is the gateway to the Mahayana tradition, and once you have bodhicitta, you are known as a child of the Buddha, which recalls the family thing that Geshe Sonam Rinchen talked about. Then she says, those with bodhicitta surpass in brilliance the arahats, and those with bodhicitta become an object of highest respect and offering. The fifth benefit is that with bodhicitta, you easily complete the collection of positive potential and insight, and we finish the last program with the sixth advantage, that obstacles brought about by our negative karma are very quickly eliminated. And that is that whatever you wish for in general will come about. So, as Tupton Children asks, what is it that we want? I want to be rich. I want to be famous. I want to be loved. I want to hear nice music. I want to have a good sex life. I want to have chocolate. I want this. I want that. So the ego is very happy. It can get all that by generating bodhicitta. Sorry, it's not quite like that. As Tipton Chodron points out, such thoughts are just a symptom of our self-absorption, and that is the opposite of bodhicitta. She says, 
we come to see how those kinds of thoughts again are set up to be miserable. I mean, it becomes real clear that all this self-absorbed rumination that we do, I want this, I want that, we're just setting ourselves up. This is because somehow we think the universe is going to go along with everything we want. That it's the universe's duty to provide me with everything I want and it does not matter if I have to take it away from somebody else to get it. She says, we begin to see this as we generate bodhicitta. Then we stop having these self-centered cravings and we drop a lot of the kind of machinations that go on in our mind. Because we all have these little schemes, don't we? We have these little schemes of what we're going to do that finally somebody realizes how wonderful and valuable we are. Don't you have that kind of scheme? So either your spouse finally realizes just how lucky they are to be married to you, or your boss realizes how lucky they are to have you as an employee. We have all these little schemes, all the schemes like what we're going to do so that other people do things my way. I mean, we're just full of it. Now, I'm not so sure that everybody's actually so full of these little schemes or that everybody expects the universe to provide whatever they want. Perhaps Tipton Chodron is being a little over the top to make a point. However, even if we don't have such schemes, when we look carefully, we can see that most of our thinking is involved with how we can best benefit ourselves. And it is that self-absorbed mind, in whatever form it takes, that bodhicitta dissolves. Let's also here remember Ajahn Brahm's teaching about loving ourselves that we made at the beginning of the program. There's quite a big difference between loving and forgiving ourselves and being self-absorbed. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence, whereas genuine love, compassion and forgiveness for oneself leads to a happy and healthy mind and, as Ajahn Brahm says, sublime love. In another program some time back, I quoted Kristen Neff, one of the foremost researchers in compassion and particularly self-compassion. Please excuse me if you know this already, but these things bear repeating, as the Tibetan Lamas so often tell us. The three qualities to nurture, to develop self-compassion Neff found, started with self-kindness. This means caring and understanding with ourselves, rather than critical or judgmental, We view our personal flaws and inadequacies with gentleness and understanding. And, she says, the emotional tone of the language we use towards ourselves is soft and supportive. We accept the fact that we are imperfect. And when external circumstances are difficult, we offer ourselves soothing and comfort rather than just grinning and bearing the difficulty like stoics. The second quality is a sense of shared humanity. We remember that all people fail, make mistakes and feel inadequate in some way. Self-compassion sees imperfection as part of the shared human condition, says Neff, so that the self's weaknesses are seen from a broad, inclusive perspective. Similarly, difficult life circumstances are framed in light of the shared human experience, so that one feels connected to, rather than disconnected from, others when experiencing suffering. She points out that we often see it as abnormal to fail, have weaknesses or experience hardship. And when we find ourselves in such situations, we isolate ourselves. This is not a rational thought process, but an irrational sense of why me that causes strong feelings of disconnection, Neff claims. 
The third component of self-compassion is mindfulness, being aware of the present moment experience in a clear and balanced manner so that we neither ignore nor dwell on the aspects of ourselves or our life we dis- that we dislike. Kirsten Neff writes, First, it is necessary to recognize that one is suffering in order to be able to extend compassion towards the self. While it might seem that personal suffering is blindingly obvious, many people actually don't pause to acknowledge their own pain because they're too busy judging themselves or problem-solving. Mindfulness involves taking a meta-perspective on one's own experience so that it can be considered with greater objectivity and perspective. Mindfulness also prevents being swept up and carried away by the storyline of one's own pain, a process that I've termed over-identification. When caught up in this manner, people tend to exaggerate and obsessively fixate on negative self-relevant thoughts and emotions, meaning that they can't see themselves or their predicament clearly. This exaggerating she refers to may not be the scheming for a better this or a more of that, the Tipton Children talks about, but can you see that it's just as much self-absorption? Actually, bodhicitta must come from an appreciation of one's own condition and a heartfelt kindness towards it. In his book, True Love, A Practice for Opening the Heart, Thich Nhat Hanh writes, The Buddha said this, The object of your practice should first of all be yourself. Your love for other, your ability to love another person, depends on your ability to love yourself. If you're not able to take care of yourself, if you're not able to accept yourself, how can you accept another person and how could you love him or her? So it is necessary to come back to yourself in order to be able to achieve the transformation. Thich Nhat Hanh goes on, Each of us is a king who reigns over a very vast territory that has five rivers. The first river is our body, which we do not know well enough. The second is the river of sensations. Each sensation is a drop of water in this river. There are pleasant sensations, others that are unpleasant and neutral sensations. To meditate is to sit down on the bank of the river of sensations and identify each sensation as it arises. The third is the river of perceptions, which it is necessary to observe. You must look deeply into their nature in order to understand. The fourth is the river of mental formations, of which there are 51. And finally, the fifth is the river of consciousness. Our territory is really very vast, but we are not responsible kings and queens. We always try to dodge away, and we do not keep up a real surveillance of our territory. We have the feeling that there are immense conflicts there, too much suffering, too much pain. That is the reason we are hesitant to go back to our territory, Our daily practice consists in running away. If we have a moment free, we will make use of it to watch television or to read a magazine article, so we will not have to go back to our territory. We are afraid of the suffering that is inside us, afraid of war and conflicts. The practice of mindfulness, the practice of meditation, consists of coming back to ourselves in order to restore peace and harmony. The energy with which we can do this is the energy of mindfulness. Mindfulness is a kind of energy that carries with it concentration, understanding and love. If we come back to ourselves to restore peace and harmony, then helping another person will be a much easier thing. Caring for yourself 
Re-establishing peace in yourself is the basic condition for helping someone else so that the other can stop being a bomb, a source of pain for ourselves and others, you really have to help him defuse the bomb. To be able to provide help, we have to have a little calm, a little joy, a little compassion in ourselves. And this is what we get from mindfulness in everyday life. Because mindfulness is not something that is only done in a meditation hall. It is also done in the kitchen, in the garden, when we're on the telephone, when we're driving a car, when we're doing the dishes. That is Thich Nhat Hanh. Through mindfulness, we can link our condition with that of all others. And so, instead of feeling isolated in our pain, we can recognize in our suffering the suffering of all others. When we develop real love and compassion through such a recognition, our mind can become so much more relaxed. And the things that we thought we wanted change. As Tupchin Children writes, People don't appreciate me? It's okay. Imagine thinking like that. Try that for one minute. Imagine thinking, it's okay that people don't appreciate me. Can you even let that thought into your mind? Can you? It's hard, isn't it? Can you really say with truthfulness, it's totally okay if these people I care about do not appreciate me? That's tough. Or maybe have a different kind of personality. Try, it's totally okay that not everybody thinks my ideas are right and my way of doing things is right. Can you think that? You can get an idea here of how, if we generate bodhicitta, these other kinds of thoughts come in our mind very easily. It's okay that not everybody appreciates me. It's okay that they all do not know how right I am. Why? This is because I'm not even thinking I'm right anymore. I'm not being attached to being right. You can see here how when you really generate bodhicitta, the old things you used to wish for you don't wish for any more. This is because you see how stupid they are. I want everybody to appreciate me. Well, even if the whole world appreciates me, are we going to feel good about ourselves? No, of course not. Even if the whole world thinks we are right, are we going to feel secure? No. With bodhicitta, we begin to see the things we thought we wanted before are not very interesting and they really are not going to bring us the happiness we want. So we change our attitude and we start to want something else. What do we want? We want beings to be well and happy. We want them to be free of fear. We want them to feel safe. We want them to feel loved and appreciated. We want them to feel valued. Then, of course, everything is going to come about because other people are loved and appreciated and valued and everything. Also, because of that, the force of the positive energy or the positive potential we create through acting with this intention that cares for countless limitless sentient beings, then we're going to create so much good karma that happiness comes our way. We do not have to struggle for happiness, but it just kind of knocks at our door. We struggle for happiness a lot now, don't we? Do you feel like your life is struggling to be happy? You're struggling to be happy. I think that comes very much from the self-absorbed thought. I want this, I want that. How come it's not like this? How come it's not like that? How can I make this happen? How can I make that happen? You know, when we relax a lot of that thinking or attitude, then things are really different. That's Tipton Children, and she presents a bit of a paradox here. First, she says that we will not find the satisfaction we desire by wanting to be appreciated by others. But then we want others to be appreciated, 
knowing even if they get the appreciation they desire, it will not bring them satisfaction. Why should we not feel good about ourselves if we are appreciated? If I do something positive that helps someone else, I do feel good about myself. And it is precisely from the happiness that another's appreciation can bring me that I realize another's wish for happiness and want them to be similarly appreciated. Why do we want others to be well and happy, safe and free of fear? Why do we want others to be valued? Because we have the experience of wanting those things for ourselves. Who wants to be unwell and unhappy, unsafe and fearful? Not me, I can tell you. It's precisely because I want those things for myself that I can develop bodhicitta. If I don't want them for myself, why would I want them for anybody else? I think it's not the wanting of wellness and happiness, safety and freedom from fear that's the problem. The problem is how we go about obtaining them. If we fixate on our own situation and chase them just for ourselves, that's when they become elusive and impossible, as I'm sure many of us have surely discovered. Only when we lift our gaze and recognize, oh, I'm not the only one in this situation, all other beings are in it as well, and include them all, that we have a chance to finally get what we want. You can call it positive karma if you wish, as Tipton Children does. But the fact is that the more we recognize ourselves and others, the easier it becomes to realize our own dreams. That is not, unfortunately, the way we are usually taught or conditioned, but that is the way the Buddha taught us to go. And of course, the more we want happiness, safety and so on for others, the less it seems so important for ourselves, because the mind is increasingly outwardly focused instead of inwardly self-absorbed. And eventually, we will be able to give wholly of ourselves and all we have because we realize that is how we will obtain everything we could actually wish for. If developing bodhicitta and giving up everything to others led to intense misery, why would we do it? But in Buddhist terms, it doesn't. It leads to perfect bliss, freedom from all suffering and omniscience. And that is why we want to embark on such a path. To me, the ultimate appreciation of oneself comes through the wholehearted appreciation of others. Thich Nhat Hanh has a beautiful story that illustrates this point. It concerns a young American who came to practice at Plum Village, Thich Nhat Hanh's center in France. One day he was asked to write a letter to his mother, which was easy for him, writes Thich Nhat Hanh. On the other hand, it was impossible for him to write a letter to his father. His father had died, but he still suffered every time he thought of him. Just the idea of picking up a pen to write to his father already caused him a great deal of suffering. I proposed the following practice to him. For one week, he practiced mindful breathing, saying to himself, Breathing in, I see myself as a child of five. When one is a little boy of five, one is very fragile and vulnerable. As he was breathing in, he saw himself as the object of his own compassion. During the second week, he meditated on his father, breathing in, I see my dad as a little child of five. Breathing out, I smile at the little boy who was my dad. For a whole week, the young American practiced very faithfully and very enthusiastically. He put a photo of his father on the table, and every time he walked into the room and looked at it, he practiced mindful breathing. He had never imagined that his father could have been a child of five. Suddenly the young man acknowledged the presence of his father as a little boy. It was the first time that he realized that his father had suffered as a little boy and suddenly he felt compassion. Finally, one evening he found it possible to write a first letter to his father. 
That transformed him completely, and now he has peace in his heart. And with that, we must part, as time is up. Please dedicate any positive energy from the program today to the enlightenment of all living beings, never ever forgetting yourself. I hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.